just a word of warning for those that might find today's episode's content upsetting or triggering. The topic of suicide does come up, but for fictional people. I did my best to not glamorize it, but if you don't want to hear that, I recommend listening to another episode. Welcome to Long Live Bat Art, the podcast for art lovers who don't see art as much as they want to. My name is Sydney, and thank you for taking this slow tour through an art gallery with a casual art lover. Today, I'll be talking about Pyramus and Thisbe by Lucas von Leyden. I hope you enjoy. Lucas von Leyden was born in the similarly spelled Leyden with an I city of the Netherlands in 1494. He was an intelligent child and was apparently often scolded by his mother for reading after nightfall because candles were expensive. I guess that's the 1500s equivalent of being told to turn off the car light when you try to read as a kid. He's known more as an engraver than a painter, though he was a known and early advocate for genre painting, which is depicting ordinary life in painting. Von Leyden's earliest known print was when he was around 14. It's unknown where and from whom he learned the technique he became known for. Despite the unsure tutelage, he's considered in the art world as one of the best printmakers of all time. It's thought that he was the one who pioneered using copper and not iron plates. The copper, being a softer metal, let the artist combine etching and engraving in the same print. While those may sound like the same technique, they aren't. Etching uses acid to make the lines, line engraving as a hand-carved aspect. But Van Leyden did paint during his career, including a self-portrait in 1508. He was most likely first trained by his father, who was a painter in his own right, Hugh Jacob Zoon. He was later apprentice under Cornelius Engelbrecht and then Albrecht Dürer, both of which were friends of his. He produced what is largely regarded to be his masterpieces of engravings under Dürer, who he learned more about engraving and Romanist style from. Romanist is just a term that art historians use to describe artists from places like the Netherlands who traveled to Rome and brought knowledge and inspiration back home. One masterpiece produced under Dürer is a work of art that Van Leyden titled, funnily enough, The Milkmaid. A second piece was named Etcher Homo and the Return of the Prodigal Son, which Rembrandt especially loved. Von Leyden did a series called The Power of Women from 1513 to 1517, which made him 19 years old when he started the series. While this seems forward-thinking, it was a pretty common subject and source of inspiration during the Renaissance in both art and written works. Despite the name, the power of women is more about women being sexual tempters to men than actually strong women standing on their own merit. Max Friedlander, a German art historian who specialized in works done during the Northern Renaissance by artists native to the Netherlands, tried to make some semblance of a developmental study in 1924, but had a lot of trouble because of the attribution mistakes that swelled and shrunk von Leyden's body of work over the years. At least Lawton Smith had some success during the early 1990s, describing his development by breaking his body of work into four distinct, yet incredibly roomy, categories. These categories are half-length figures, landscapes, artwork influenced by Antwerp, and so-called late works featuring full figures against the woods. During the later part of his suspected career, 
Marcantonio Raimondi inspired Van Laden with his nude figures, which Van Laden incorporated into some of his commissioned altarpieces. This made Van Laden one of the first Dutch artists who borrowed the Italian style of depicting nude people. Van Laden died in 1533 at the age of 39. About 200 of Van Laden's signed engravings survive, with about 17 paintings. Another 27 paintings were described by Carol von Mander or were copied by Jan de Bishop. I actually had never heard of von Leyden before I started researching Dutch masters, but this piece of art was fascinating to me. First of all, because I had never heard of Pyramus or Thisbe, and second of all, because I had never seen an engraving before. Because I had never heard of Pyramus or Thisbe, I needed to do a bit of research. They were a mythological couple that Ovid wrote in his Metamorphosis, and then later by Geoffrey Chaucer in his Legend of Good Women. Pyramus is the man, Thisbe is the woman. They were neighbors in Babylon, who were forbidden to marry by their families, but they spoke to each other via a crack in the wall that separated their houses. They made plans to meet at a mulberry tree in a rope. Thisbe arrived first, but as she waited for her love, a lioness came to drink from the spring, her face bloody from her last meal. Thisbe ran, dropping her veil in the process. The lioness took the veil in her bloody jars and ripped it like a plaything before she grew bored and left. Pyramus came upon the bloody and torn veil and knew it was Thisbe's. He thought the love of his life was dead because she was waiting for him. He impaled himself on his sword. Why he was carrying a sword to meet his love? I'm not sure, but maybe in case of lionesses. Thisbe found him with her veil in his hand. The dying Pyramus opened his eyes and saw her alive and well. She realized what had happened and took the sword from his body and killed herself with it. They died together. Their families found them and buried them in the same tomb. It's said that the mulberries from that tree are dark because of their blood. So remind me not to eat the mulberries from that tree. On to the star of this episode, the engraving. Pyramus is lying on the ground on the right of the image. He's still clutching where he stabbed himself with his right hand. His left hand is carelessly sprawled closer to the viewer on his rumpled coat. The folds on his coat are more geometric but still realistic in a way. They're shaded. The coat has a high collar which is stiffer than the rest of the garment. The collar has only a few folds near the back of his neck. Pyramus has his head thrown back and his long wavy hair is spilled out on the ground. His throat is exquisitely detailed. You can see his Adam's apple. His shirt is detailed as well. There are vertical pleats over his chest above a design that looks like braided rope. Under the rope design, the folds are horizontal. Below that, his pants start. Where a belt would be on a modern pair of pants are tight vertical pleats. I think the fabric is gathered there. Under the belt, the pants are smoother where they stretch across his thighs. Below that is the rest of his pants or maybe some high decorative socks. They have different designs. Pleats? Yes but these are wider and curved around his calf. Four rows of wide pleats with a couple more of that rope design. There's a bow just below his knee. You can see only one leg clearly, and even that one is bent at the knee with his foot pointed like a ballerina as his toes graze the ground. 
The other leg is obscured by his calf and bent at the knee, but on that one it's his heel that is sliding across the ground. He's still wearing the sheath his sword used to be in. It's trapped underneath him. The leather belt holding the sheath is thin and wrapped diagonally across his hips. There are more rope-like designs on the arm of his coat. Again, only one arm is fully shown, his left. It's laid on top of his cloak and the fabric extends to cover most of his hands. Only part of his fingers are visible. He's wearing shoes that have another bow on the top. Now onto Thisbe. She's crying. She has a handkerchief to her closed eyes and her other hand is around Pyramus' sword. She's holding the blade delicately. The sword itself is long. Even though she's holding it to her chest, the pommel almost touches Pyramus' thigh. The sword's hilt is plain, dark, but with a lighter band cutting it in half the short way. The hilt is curved towards the blade. Above the hilt is another crossbar, this one circular. Each half turns from the edge and into the blade. Thisbe is wearing a dress. It's more taut around her thighs, though the center has folds before it stretches across her other thigh. It's a long dress. The end of it is pulled on the ground. Again, geometric yet realistic folds. She has a sash tied around her waist that's holding some other piece of fabric. The tassel of the sash close to the viewer ends at her mid-thigh. The dress is a deep v-neck, but there has to be some undergarment. I highly doubt Babylonian women were allowed to wear such revealing clothing. On the dress's front, you can see a band where the fastenings of the dress are hidden that ends before the skirt of the dress starts. The skirt above the sash is taut across her body in the front, and it has folds in the rear. Thisbe is wearing a tight covering on her head that must have been under the veil. There's a separate small piece of metal or button attached to the fabric at her forehead. It looks like a flower with a center and petals. On the side of her head is another piece of metal or button, this one much larger. That piece is circular with another flower design on it. The garment curves under her chin. There are more folds in the fabric, these much slimmer and tighter, more like wound bandages than fabric. The back of the garment is billowing behind her as if she's in a strong wind. There are more geometric folds at the end, like Pyramus's coat. The arm she's using to hold the handkerchief to her face has fabric on it as well. It's pleated above her elbow, but you can only see the rounded bottoms of the pleats. There are tighter folds between those and her wrists, which has the fabric gathered around it. Her face is oval-shaped, and she's turned her face away from Pyramus. That's it for the figures. To the right of Thisbe, and further back in the space of the engraving, there's a fountain. It has smooth sides that have a wide band near the lip, then it has the lip itself. The top of the well of the fountain is wide. The water is cascading down from spouts above carvings in the post of the fountain. The carvings are of figures, but only one is seen from a frontal view. Male or female, I'm not sure because it's so small. But the figure is depicted as slightly being turned to the left of the scene, more towards Thisbe than Pyramus. Above the spout is a ball that's below a small statue of Cupid and his bow and arrow. He's drawing the bowstring back, and his bow is curved at the top and bottom and is tucked in the middle, enough for his hand to hold. The arrow is pointing at the top of Thisbe's head. The ground is a combination of cragged rock and sparse grass. There's a patch of tall grass right behind the hilt of Pyramus's sword. Near Pyramus's cloak is what may be his hat. I think those are the soft feathers, like a quill or the top of a decorative helmet that he might have had on it. 
You can see some individual stones scattered on the ground, but still clustered together. To the right of the fountain and near the edge of the image are two trees you can see the trunks of. There's a branch coming out of the left one that's twining around another slimmer branch. You can't see many leaves. In the background, below the elevated part where Pyramus and Thisbe are, is a low valley that is lusher. The lioness is there, playing with the veil Thisbe discarded. The lioness has her front paws and her jaws on the fabric, the rest of her body is off of it. Her tail is slightly curved but is along the ground. Behind her are more trees. The sky is shaded with tight horizontal lines that fade around a large cloud on the right. The cloud has smaller horizontal lines in it where the cloud shows the sky. Now for my thoughts. The way Van Layden was able to use simple lines and no color to create such a moving scene is incredible. Even the ground is detailed. The water pouring from the fountain. It's so clear what it is, even if there wasn't a fountain to pour it to pour into. It's made of two gently curved lines showing the start and end of the thin stream, and the minimalist detail is fascinating. The detail of Cupid being the statue at the top of the fountain is as humorous as it is heartbreaking. Love brought them together and drove them apart and killed them at the end. I'm glad that their families buried them in the same tomb. They're together now, in body as well as in the afterlife. There as they always wanted to be, even if it took such tragedy to get there. The emotion in this piece is relatable. Thisbe is crying because the love of her life is dead or dying, and the detail of the lioness still being present is an amazing artistic choice. Not only does it give a nod to the viewer who knows the story, but it's also a reminder of what preceded the scene Von Layden depicted. The lioness can well be seen as an agent of fate, one that tore the lovers apart by her mere presence and not her claws and teeth. It almost would have been less heartbreaking if the lioness had killed Thisbe. Sure, Pyramus would have probably still killed himself to join her, but the fact that it's the misunderstanding that breaks his heart and he saw Thisbe alive at the end is what makes the ending so poignant. There's no monster to slay, no outside force to blame. Just two young lovers that want desperately to be together and can't be, at least not in life. The fluidity in the piece is incredible. Pyramus isn't lying flat on his back, he's contorted. And normally that would be grotesque, but Van Layden depicted as almost dancer-like. I mentioned that one of his feet is pointed like a ballerina's and the rest of his body is just as graceful. Even the way his coat is laid on the ground is interesting. It's not flat or even bunched, it's more like it's been laid out. And I know this isn't realistic, but it is beautiful. Disby's billowing clothes are just as beautiful and just as not realistic. But realism isn't the only thing to strive for in art. Sometimes, you have to sacrifice realism to capture emotion. The way the fabric around her head is being almost inflated is fascinating. It's almost like nature itself is apologizing for the lioness's interfering and trying to lift Thisbe to join her lover's spirit. Thisbe's also turned her face from Pyramus, like she can't bear to look at him dead one more second or maybe doesn't want him to see what she's about to do. Even though the story is purely mythological, there's a lesson to be learned here. And it's not just watch out for lionesses at streams or make sure that somebody is actually dead before going to such drastic measures, but it's the idea that love can't be stopped. Pyramus and Thisbe were forbidden to get married, but they made a plan to do it anyway, and they paid for their love with their deaths. 
Their families had to live with that for the rest of their lives, and they finally saw the truth at the end. They're buried together. Love is what moves everything around us, and I don't mean just romantic love. Love from parents, love from children, love from friends, love from within ourselves. It all adds up and makes humans do what we do. It makes humans do what we've always done and always will, and that's reach out. Because that's all it takes, really, reaching out. Pyramus and Thisbe reached out and they found each other. Their families reached towards them at the end and brought them closer together. Because even if all else goes wrong, there's always a chance that reaching out will fix it. Even at the end, when love wasn't enough, the fact that it was there at all mattered. And knowing that is really all you need to keep moving forward in life and find new and exciting things to love. Here's my challenge for you. Open your eyes a little wider today as you go about your life and notice one thing you haven't before. It could be a bird's nest in a tree you passed a million times. It could be a chalk drawing on the sidewalk. It could be a sign you've looked at without seeing before. You might just find yourself with a new interest like bird watching, drawing, or typography. And if you find a new interest, there's a lot more love in your future. If you like this episode of Long Live Bad Art, please consider telling a friend and reviewing to help the podcast grow. A link to the transcript of this episode is available in the show notes below. Thank you for listening to this episode, and I'll see you in two weeks.